time for another episode of the Tennis Tragic. Roland Garros has finished. And uh, boy, that Rafa Nadal, he sure, sure seems like a lucky fellow, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was he was properly challenged there uh, until the final. Well, there was a bit of luck, though. I mean, I know he wasn't lucky, but there was a bit of luck in how seedings ended up before this ornament which made one side of the draw ridiculously stacked and the other side not. That was lucky. Just the way that, you know, Medvedev was still high enough to make draws lopsided on his least great surface. And, and Nadal has fallen just enough to be on the wrong side of the draw and the things lined up like that. But I mean, yeah, the, to get to the final, to get to the final was, was the challenge. Once he got to the final, pretty perfect for him to be able to be get to the final and basically walk into Philip Chatrier knowing that you're gonna win like <laughs> you walk in that court and you're like sweet I've, I've won this I could just enjoy playing here it could be the last time and, and you can probably pro- properly just enjoy playing there I, would, that would, I think that would have been a really freeing feeling for him just being like alright <laughs> here we go I can just lap it up and win this in straight sets and I know that's gonna happen <laughs> Even with a numb foot. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, the thing is, though, like, yeah, to, I agree. Like, to, to, to get there was the massive challenge, and he he beat four top ten players on the way to, to the final, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Who was before Djokovic again? Uh, Felix. Felix. Oh, yeah, that's right, Felix. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he took him the distance. Who's for sure gonna break up with Tony Tony Nadal after this? <laughs> yeah, he was clearly rooting for Rafa during that match. And then he, like, disappeared. Yeah, yeah I heard some commentary on that, and it, and it was like, I thought, I thought it was fair enough. Like, have, yeah, root for Nadal in private, but be a professional. Don't do any interviews, man. Don't do any interviews. That's it. Full stop. Like, what are you doing? It was particularly weird that he sat himself, like, front center. Like, he, he took the best seat in the house for that match. It's like, the whole point is that you should not be a distraction to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some some weird decision-making there. Before the final, I think he said, well, if it can't, if it can't be Rafa, the, the next best guy would be rude anyway. So that's good. Like, mate, you coach another player. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. If Felix was on the other side of the draw, I think he would have probably been in the final. I mean, yeah. if we're talking about luck, I think Rude's luck was pretty high. I mean, he's a very good player. I don't know how many finals he's going to be in. I mean, he could win a French maybe. I heard someone compare, like someone said, I can't remember where I saw it, but they said that it was very reminiscent of the uh, Nadal Dominic team final in Roland Garros a couple of years ago where the team was just clearly outmatched. But then after that, he turned into a beast, won the US Open, and just started dominating. And uh, it would be cool if that happened to Rude, if he, he got, got there and was like, oof, I was clearly outmatched there, and just stepped it up and just went over the next little edge and became a team. He could become a team, you know? Yeah, no, no, he's very good. And he won Geneva and he got to the semis of Rome before that. He's like, um, he's clearly a very good top 10 player and very good on play. And he made the final. Yeah. But he, yeah, 
I didn't actually watch the final, I have to admit. I started, I mean, I watched the first four or five games and I was just, it was so late and I just fell asleep in bed with the match still going. But I, I look at the score, 6-3, love or something like that. 6-1, 6-3, maybe? No, I think, I think it was 3-3 three, three in love. Yeah. 3-3 three, three in love, yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't so, get back. I was watching replays. I wasn't watching them live and I was watching replays, but I didn't even bother watching the replay of that one. I watched the first couple games and I was like, yeah. It was the most anticlimactic final ever. Yeah, both of them. Uh, you know, it, it's funny because because often at the end of a slam, I feel like I'm a little burned out, you know, like, uh, like, I, you know, this is this is like one of the things I love the most and I love being on the ride. And then at the end, it's like, OK, thank God there's a little bit of a break. But the, the, the ending was so poor, yeah. <laughs> like just in terms of match quality, like I kind of crave more tennis now. Like I'm like, all right, let's get to the grass. Let's let's flip it on. Yeah. See what's going on. And uh bad Humburg or something, you know? Um, could Sviontek want to be Rafa anymore? Like, I know the people can, like, compare and uh, some people are like, all right, enough with the Rafa comparisons, but she does everything like Rafa. She, even in, in the way that she comes out on court holding the racket that she's going to play with already, not in the bag, like Rafa does. Huh. Not many other players do that. And then after she won, she bit into the trophy exactly like Rafa only does. Like, like oh, she on. did. She did bite the trophy. I was asking because I was like half watching the trophy celebration, and whoever I was in the room was like, "No, I didn't see that." He's like, "Yeah." I saw a photo of it. I didn't watch it live, but I saw a photo of her biting into the trophy. Oh, maybe it was like after, maybe like during the photo part. Like, maybe. Maybe, yeah. All right. Well, let's take it further. What else can we find in common? Um, Ruff is a big fan of football. His um, his uncle played for Spain. Yeah, Real Madrid fan, right? He went to the he went to the what was it? The Champions League final. Yeah, and Schwantek had uh, Lewandowski, the famous Polish football player, in watching the final. Hmm. I think uh, I think Sviantek was wearing a uh, tank top. Yeah. <laughs> um, the ticks, though, I do, she hasn't gone that far. That would be like creepy stalker territory if she's like laying out the towel yeah. and like adjusting it. So I saw a joke tweet about it. She, she doesn't actually do this, but there was I think she one time she readjusted, like pulled a wedgie out and someone had just had a screenshot of that. And she was like, <laughs> And the caption was just like, all right, now this rapper wannabe is getting a bit far now. <laughs> well, she is the most dominant player on the planet right now. I mean, no disputing it. That's six tournaments in a row. Um, what is it, 36 matches? I think matching or exceeding Serena's most recent uh, peak. Yeah, I think she's um, gone over now. I can't remember. Is it matched or beaten? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's beaten. She's still got Venus Williams' streak to beat, though. I think Venus Williams has the biggest streak of all time, which is like 37 or 38 matches. Oh, no, row. it's it's Mar Martina Nevratilova won like 72 matches in a row. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> I had that on I had that on the Trello for the last talk, but um, yeah, didn't didn't bring it up. It's... Uh, it's funny too because they like talk about Serena's record as if it's the record, but apparently Martina has it. That's true. They were aiming it like that, uh, but 
yeah, I, I was, now that you say that, of course she had, of course Martina had, had it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, now it's a pretty hard transition to keep the streak though. And now just going into grass. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty curious to see how she transitioned. She can keep it alive. Yeah, for sure. It, I mean, it is interesting. She obviously idolized Rafa. Everybody knows it. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, huh. and, uh, I mean, even if I think it's a weird decision, um, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but she doesn't, I don't know. She doesn't play like Rafa to me. I mean, you know, and she certainly doesn't emote like Rafa, you know, she doesn't have that kind of like fiery in your face, celebratory kind of bouncing around vibe. She doesn't have, she doesn't have the mentality of, of like, even when things are going wrong. Rafa is just like, that's fine. I'm going to win the next point. Um, that's fine. When mm. things start going wrong for Shantek, she starts getting annoyed. She starts getting frustrated and and angry at herself. You can see it start coming out. And I mean, no one has it like Rafa though. Rafa's alone in that in that mentality sort of thing. Yeah, that's why I kind of think he's a little bit of a psychopath. But like Shantek, uh, I mean, in a way that almost says something... Uh, impressive about her because she's able to win despite like yeah. things getting under her skin like she does yeah. she seems a little bit more human in that way but she's just so much better than everybody else right now quietly you know like she just doesn't have she doesn't have a big personality she doesn't feel like a superstar yet even though she clearly is she's she's yeah. at the absolute top she's been copping a little bit of uh criticism for slowing down play you've been hit seeing any of that she'll keep holding up someone's serve and stuff like that oh i i noticed that a bit against goff because goff i think was and i was like goff is playing way too fast given how this match is going like she needs to slow things down but i was also appreciating it because you know like watching you know like rafa's varev we're like holy cow i mean the number of time violations rafa has not received oh yeah (laughs) like it's you know and when i watch an entire rafa match i really do get frustrated with that you know um yeah i often don't watch entire rafa matches but um you know caught a few of them this time because there were some good ones but mm-hmm. i mean in hell that's very i mean we got to talk about that zvera semifinal because that was that was something crazy and mm-hmm. um did feel like a little bit of weird cosmic karmic justice in a way um but also you know, so so Zverev, for any listener who doesn't who, you know, didn't watch this match or kind of catch the news, it's like he was really pushing Rafa. I mean, he was in a first set tie break, had multiple set points. Rafa played unbelievably when he was set point down. I mean, he really earned that set. A couple of those passing shots in that tie break was were amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Gotta give it up. Vintage Rafa. Totally. And but and that set took over an hour and a half. And then the second set took over an hour and a half and they didn't they got to the tie break but then on the point where Rafa leveled it at six uh Zverev went over on his ankle and you know tore a bunch of ligaments and was in excruciating pain and you know and in that you know I mean I just don't I don't want to see that happen to anybody even somebody I dislike as much as I dislike Zverev yeah he was uh, crawling out in pain like no one does that usually when they have they have an injury you know like athletes have high pain thresholds i guess but he was like singing out in great agony and everyone was silent and it's just very rolling around ah ah 
um so yeah that was that was awful yeah he was he was like a little kid you know who like yeah. fell on his face and broke something i mean it was <laughs> and you don't see exactly what happens at first when you're watching it but the commentators were saying um we're informed that the footage is too ugly it's it's too um graphic to show it's we're not going to show it oh really that's interesting no they did eventually show it oh okay but at first the the like whatever the director of the television network was saying we we shouldn't show it like it's it's too disturbing it might be too disturbing and then they they changed their decision i didn't think it was that bad when they were talking about that i was like this is going to be horrible and then they played it i was like all right it's bad but it's not like can't show it on tv it was I, bone going through skin. All right, keep that keep that shit in the in the replay truck. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I think I think you have a higher vicarious pain threshold than the rest of us. Because no, no, I yeah, because I've done it and I I feel it. I I've done that injury and I was on crutches for months with it. I know how much it hurts, but I I don't know. I I do get it and it did make me cringe watching it a bit, but needed to see it. Yeah, had to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can handle it. I can watch that sort of thing and feel for the human being that it happens to. Do I want to watch it multiple times? I mean, the the tennis channel was showing the match and they were like, okay, just warning before we show this, like this is yeah. really terrible, you That's know? Good. And so if you don't want to watch it to turn away, but of course everybody's just like, I got to see this horrible thing <laughs> happen. <laughs> and like, exactly. and then you're like, Oh God. And then they play it over and over and over again. And with the screen too, you know, and it's just like, Oh my God, like this is, fucking brutal and also i really feel badly for zverev which is you know which is weird it's just you know it's just i don't know getting me to reflect on like the extremity of my feeling about him you know he's still a human being and it wasn't just the pain it wasn't just the physical pain it's like he could have beaten rafa that day or at the very least and what i was rooting for he could have taken rafa into a five set match that lasted over seven hours thereby completely depleting rafa for the final um so i don't know it was i thought it was like a strangely compelling match to watch for two guys i don't ever root for um and yeah and it was a shame that it that it turned out the way it did yeah it was a good match was that the match that the tennis podcast was saying that it was a terrible match and they were like they weren't interested in it going further. I was, I found that really strange. Disagree. Because, like, yeah, I disagree with that big time. Wow, they said that. Yeah, I, I like that. It was a really good match. There were some great points. It was, it was good to high level tennis. Yeah, I mean, I guess the second set was like all breaks. Like, I don't know if. Yeah, that's true. It was like everybody. I think both players held serve once. Yeah, and that's wild for Rafa. But it, it was compelling because of that it was yeah. you know players not being completely themselves but right i thought the level was high and it, the, mm. the stakes were obviously huge you know yeah um, and, and it's seeing rafa problem solve um he he doesn't give up but he was outmatched in terms of power uh with, with the conditions the heavy conditions right Zero being able to hit through rafa and then so rafa's like hmm he had to serve volley a little bit. He had to think about what else he could do. Drop shots. He played some great drop shots. He went through a lot of short slides. Yeah. His short slides was his change was good. Yeah. And that, that um, changed the dynamics of the rallies and made for some pretty exciting cat and mouse points. 
So I, I thought it was brilliant. And, um, and then it, if you think about a match, like a, we were talking about this in the chat, like a, as a, having a narrative structure, which tennis kind of lends itself to, this is even, it's even wilder that it ended there, you know, like um, all of a sudden it was, it was finished, but, but you didn't feel dissatisfied because we'd had over three hours of really good tennis and then a really gruesome twist at the end. Yeah, it's sometimes I like to think about how like really famous matches you could show like the score line and know what the match was or at least like, you know, yeah, reconstruct like a narrative of what happened in the match. And this this match, if you just told somebody seven, six, six, all three hours retirement, like, I mean, that's a it's a famous match in a way. I mean, I, I think the winner of that would have won the title either way. Oh, yeah, that was the fun. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I was surprised because also the tennis podcast is so relentlessly positive, although they also they did strongly dislikes Verov as well. Yeah. And they express it a little bit differently than we do. But um, I think that probably contributed to it because, mm-hmm. you know, for them, for them, they all love Rafa. They think like, you know, mm-hmm. it was just obvious that everybody should be rooting for, for Rafa in that situation. So. You know, and if you're a Rafa fan, I think you probably would have come out of that being pretty concerned. Can we can we talk about his foot? Because yes, the idea that he was having these injections and literally couldn't feel his foot seems dubious to me. I just I I, like you got to be able to feel something to move, right? I I watched. There's a great um, doctor on YouTube called Foot Doctor Zach. He like he plays tennis and basketball, and he reviews all the tennis and basketball shoes. But he's a doctor as well, and um, whenever there's an injury to a, to a famous player, he goes and he says, "Now, you know, Weiss Mueller syndrome that Rafa has. Um, you know, it's, it shows us the bone, and, and yeah, he actually reviewed the um, nerve injections that Rafa was getting. So apparently, there's three of these nerve bundles running down the top of the foot." And he, he gets injections in each of those progressively. Um, so nerve number one, how, how are you feeling? Nerve number two. And we don't know this, but he might get injections in all three of them, which would mean that he has no sensation in the foot, but he can move every muscle and it doesn't affect any of the, the movement of the foot. There is another thing where you, you could like completely numb the foot um, and not be able to move the muscles. But there's a, apparently another option for Rafa is that he could burn these nerve things and never feel his foot again. Like his lover would never be able to kiss his foot and he would, for him to feel it, for instance. Or, well, no, I know. think that I was talking about that, that the, the burning of it is a lot more localized where the pain specifically is so it's not it's not as full-on as the injection where it numbs like a whole big chunk of your foot the burning of it just really just a very specific part goes dead not the whole feeling of the whole foot yeah and it's not guaranteed that it will necessarily succeed but he's having that radio ablation uh procedure and we'll see if he can play wimbledon afterwards but if if it doesn't solve the problem he may be in person serious surgery and yeah i don't know the rumors were flying about you know him 
potentially hanging it up after that win. I mean, it's he is really sacrificing his future quality of life potentially. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of these guys I think get to that point where they've just pushed so hard that their body starts falling apart. Yeah. But man, like I mean, doesn't he want to walk? I mean, I feel like there's just something like I don't, I don't, I don't feel like it's admirable to push yourself that far you know like we, we sometimes we talk up these athletes like man the pain threshold it's you just gotta you gotta love it you know like his willingness to put to sacrifice everything but i think it's like kind of creepy like to you know to go to that extreme i'm also wondering why that's different from like performance enhancing drugs you know i mean it's it's not uncommon what he's doing like um, maybe the extre- extremity of this particular like injection procedure to kind of get him functional for this tournament is a little bit on the extreme end, but a lot of athletes get injections. Those do fuck you up in the end. But like, why is that not like, you know, taking steroids? I agree. agree. How is it that both performance enhancing in a directly performance enhancing? I just don't understand why that one is classified as as that and one is not. I completely agree with you there, yeah. Are you saying like R- Rafa getting Novocaine injections in his foot is similar to performance enhancing drugs? Well, yeah. I mean, without them, he would not be able to perform. Yeah, it's enhancing so, his performance drastically. I guess. I guess you were you're, like. I guess you're saying that it's it's bringing him from an injured state to a hopefully normal state, whereas a performance enhancing drug would take a normal state and elevate it beyond. I guess that. Yeah, totally. It's a medical treatment for an injury. It's not like a. a enhancing the human body beyond its normal basic function but i don't think that's you know get, i guess getting more oxygen in your blood like some of them do some of the drugs do or getting stronger muscles quicker like some of them do that that's not beyond the human capability it just happens quicker with these drugs right so it's, it's no, you can say the same thing there testosterone steroids you know, reoxygenating the blood, it it's it does things to the body that normally it just just can't happen. No matter how hard you work. It's like in the cycling, right? Lance Armstrong won all those Tour de France's because he had performance enhancing drugs, pushed his body beyond any other the capability of all those other riders from all over the world trying their best with their training techniques and everything. Oh, but but that story is also that basically the entire tour was taking those same drugs. He was not he was not alone in, in doing true. that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, but even so, it's still it's still you couldn't. The the idea is that you couldn't succeed without the performance enhancing drugs at the Tour de France. Yeah, because that's all, definitely because a normal true. person wouldn't be able to win. Right. But I, I do think there's this thing about the, the drugs, you know, like how they define what constitutes a performance enhancing drug that's like kind of slippery, right? Like that's what I'm saying. Yeah. at this point in time, sports science is so well developed. I mean, they're taking all kinds of supplements. They have really tailored diets. They're doing everything they can as long as it's not on the list. Like Sharapova, you know, got that banned for, for taking a drug that had previously been acceptable, you know? So somebody didn't get the memo or she took a risk, but the idea that she did something that was like out of bounds, I mean, she had been doing it. And like, what exactly is it about that that 
you know, suddenly changed. You know, I just think it's it's hard to define when we put substances in our body. They are they are maybe changing our potential, but it's still within the realm of what a human body can accomplish. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, uh, no, I agree with that characterization of what of the drugs, what they do to the body, but I don't, in the case of Rafa, he's he's just treating um, treating an injury, and there's no advantage to like a normal foot. Like he's not making his foot any better. He's just being able to play through the pain. And an actual fact is he has less feel and responsiveness and balance on that foot because he doesn't have the um, uh, he doesn't have the sensation. So it's actually. Still, he's still at a disadvantage. But where is that? Where is the line there between you know managing your body, managing your injuries, managing your schedule and everything, so you don't get fucked up and fully injured? Where is the line there between doing that and just going so far and injecting yourself with everything you can to cover up all the injuries and numb yourself enough to, to play? Like, where's you know what I mean? Where's the? I think I think it's I think it's performance enhancing you know in a, in a way because if you if your body's breaking down and getting injured and you are unable to sort of manage it with, without injecting yourself to fix it like I don't know I just I think there's a parallel there for sure with, with performance enhancing drug. I'm not saying his his should be uh, what he did was wrong or anything, but I'm just saying I agree with David. Yeah, I, I mean, if if he was actually at a deficit for where he would normally be, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, he still he still went out there and beat everybody up. I mean, beating Djokovic, I mean, that was not a foregone conclusion. That was a hard match to get mm. through. Felix was surprisingly tough. Uh, you know, who knows how this Zverev match would have gone if Zverev had been able to get through it. I, I still feel like mentally... Zverev would have stopped himself from winning. I think that that would have been the difference in the end. You know, the fact that he didn't close out that first set. He did. He had an easy put away at net, right? And I think there was a double fault in there. Yeah, I think there was a couple of double faults in there. Yeah. So that's 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 one of the differences that no drug or treatment uh, yeah. could ever cover up for. He is absolutely maybe the best ever in any sport at just, you know, not letting the moment ever get to him. I, I can't ever. I've, I've seen him be irritated or maybe even a little deflated if he's actually getting beaten, which is so rare. But I just I mean, that that part of him is I mean, I do find it a little unsettling the the completeness, the totality of it. But it is it is superhuman. And yeah, I have to give him give him that. Oh, absolutely. Huge respect to what he did push through that injury and, and win for the 14th time. That's insane. Yeah. Never. I mean, they are, you know, it's always that thing with records, like it'll never be topped. Um, maybe, maybe Shriantek will do it. I mean, she's, a, she's just yeah. only 20 years old. Um, yeah. But uh, holy cow. I mean, you know, all that we were talking about it last time, all the hype about Alcaraz and he deserves it. Even though he lost his Verev, he's, he is absolutely a contender for, I think probably every slam from here like for the next, you know, I mean, we'll see, you know, these characters, these players have arcs, you know, he could get injured. Things could change. Maybe he's never had those tough losses and had to kind of power through and, you know, get back out there. And like, he doesn't have all that scar tissue 
but yeah. he's lost twice at Roland Garros and Rafa's lost three times. Like what the, how is that even it just doesn't, you, you try to like put it into context and it just doesn't make any sense. It's uh it's just wild. <laughs> um, so how about uh Coco Goff? She unfortunately lost the double. She was the, she got the double plate, the double dish. <laughs> <laughs> she got the she's a double loser uh, I mean she has a lot to be proud of I mean that's not her first doubles final and won't be her last in either and it's awesome that she's she's going deep in doubles as well but you know she also didn't play a top 30 player on the way to the final you know it's uh, mm-hmm. it's just a different different scene I think people thought she was going to be able to like hang with Fiontek and give her a match. And certainly I was hoping that that would be the case, but yeah, I was didn't, it didn't materialize. I was hoping Martina Trevisan would, um, would give her, uh, and I think she did give her a good match in the semi, even though the score was lopsided. I really enjoyed watching, um, Trevisan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a fan of hers for sure. She's feisty five foot three and she's rocking the Diodora. Yeah. You don't see many players wearing Deodora these days. Yeah, we didn't talk about it last time, Matt, but you know that she um, she like didn't play for four years or something because she was having she had trouble with an eating disorder. She had to like yeah. really like work through some some mental health stuff to to get back out there. And it's also kind of wild because she I think she won four matches on tour last year. I mean, she had made a French quarterfinal a few years back. And, you know, I don't know, got into the top 30 or whatever, but then fell off the the planet again. And you thought like, oh, this is just one of those random breakthroughs that, you know, that happens sometime. She was playing ITF and qualifiers mainly, but um, yeah. it's back. She won a tournament before before Roland Garros and, and yep. she made a semifinal. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good month for for anybody. So. Yeah, I hope she can keep it up and stay out there. I mean, she's, she's not young, all that young for a tennis player either. 27 or 28. 28? Yeah, I think 28. Yeah, so. and that story about her um, her struggles with her body and mental health struggles and stuff, I think it's uh, something that people can relate to. And, you know, it's a, it's a good story to see someone come out the other side of that and be successful. Yeah. So good on her. Absolutely. She seems like a lovely person as well. Yeah, she's just like... I don't know. It was interesting watching Goff against her because in my mind, Goff is like this joyful 14-year-old winning at Wimbledon. But she's actually over time kind of gotten a lot more serious and composed. Um, And she'll show you some joy when she wins. But during a match, she's very steady. And Trevisan just shows you everything. And, you know, I I tend to be a a sucker for that. But like the whole range, and she's able to kind of like you know, smile through ridiculous bad moments and like just her attitude feels really refreshing. Like, you, you know, I don't know. It's always this thing when you talk about women who smile on court or something. But like, I would like to see anybody smile. Like, I like seeing the players enjoy what they're doing. And it actually seems like she's enjoying the process, like the, the fight. And yeah, just like I love it when just like I love it when TFO does it. Oh, yeah. Good example. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's joyful and it's weird that there's kind of a deficiency of that. I mean, it's their job. It's super serious. There's money on the line every time they go out there. But yeah, it's it's just refreshing to like get that reminder that this is a game and Mm. it can be looked at that way. You know, 
Mm. You don't get that from from Zverev, for example. Like <laughs> you know, um, Trevisan's uh, uh, vocalizations came into question during the match. Oh yeah, she has a very protracted expression when she strikes the ball, and it seems to kind of follow the strike. But I really I love the way Trevisan handled it because it. I don't know um, who was it. Lindsay Davenport was calling the game here, and uh, she was she was like kind of livid on behalf of Trevisan. She's like, this is something they should talk about before the match. Like she's been doing this the entire tournament. It's totally inappropriate to bring it up mid match. She should not have to change anything. This is how she well, did plays. Did she get called the hindrance? She didn't get called for it, but Coco kind of flagged it. And the umpire talked to Trevisan about it. And Trevisan was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm happy with the way I play. <laughs> you know, like she's just like, I'm not changing anything. Yeah. Call injured. It's a shut up. <laughs> Don't tell me to change. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So Coco was like, um, in the first game, I, I think, uh, can you like this? Uh, normally I wouldn't say anything, but this, these vocalizations are really distracting me. Um, almost to the point where it's interfering with my ball strike. Um, and the, the umpire Mariana, you know, um, I don't know, Valesco or something like that. Volume. Like, yeah, something like that. Sorry. We'll, we'll I was going to say right. Volubitch or Golubit. That's a player. Golubitch is a player. Yeah. Uh, can a... you, can Davy Gravy tell us? Marijana Viljavic. Yeah, I don't know if you can pronounce it, but uh, I'll have him look <laughs> into it. Mariana Veljovic. Well, anyway, um, she said, uh, I will talk to Martina at the change of ends to not interfere, which was great, you know. And then Coco was like, okay, yeah, cool. And so when they did have the conversation, Martina was like, I don't want to hear this from you. I've been playing the same way um, this whole time. I'm comfortable with the way I play. I'm not going to change anything. And then um, I was like, no, but you got to, you have to, yeah, it's too long. You need, you can't interfere with it. But no, no, I've been playing this way. I'm not going to change. I like the way I play. Thank you very much. Uh, which was perfect, wasn't it? Because you you don't have enough mental space in a Grand Slam semifinal to change your game in that moment. You gotta just commit. Um, yeah. And then she didn't get called for hindrance after that. So the umpire was like, and I was watching the I was watching the grunts. They, they were very long. They seemed to follow the ball to the other side of the court. But I don't think they quite made it to the point of Coco striking the ball. So that was something the commentators were saying. If you can't hear the ball in your strings, that really can interfere with your timing. But I don't think it was quite that bad. Right. And that's probably why she didn't ultimately get called for hindrance, even though she was definitely right up against that line. And yeah, good on her for standing up for herself. I mean, that's a fucking ton of pressure in that moment. I mean, she's on the cusp of a Grand Slam final out of nowhere, mm. you know. And yeah, and I agree, Matt. Like that felt like a close match, even though it was it was a lopsided scoreline in the end. Like there were some pretty tough uh, games in there, and it felt like it could have maybe gone a little bit in the other direction. I mean, she beat she beat Goff during her previous Roland Garros run a couple years ago. So yeah. Hope hope to see more of her on tour. Hope she's uh, viable on other surfaces and follows this up. But um, mm. great run by her. Oh, there's the Rude Runa match. Did you guys watch that one? No, I heard some. I heard about it a little bit. 
Yeah, the uh, the tennis—I uh, I almost called them the tennis tragic. <laughs> the uh, the tennis podcast description of like the post-match aggro was really pretty funny. Like, and I do agree that it's like in the, the realm of like, okay, one player is just being a dick and like creating this row between these players, but it didn't really get to like a personal space. I mean, Runa, like, just—I mean, total brat. Um, you know, like I, I saw the handshake at the net and, uh, yeah, be careful, Alex, him and his mom might be listening. Yeah. Good. Fuck you, Rune. <laughs> <laughs> Olga Rune, wow. if you're listening, fuck you. <laughs> Damn. Oh, Alex, I hate you. <laughs> In the best possible way. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> with, with total, total respect. I mean, no. like. <laughs> We really appreciate your support. These beta brats just came on the tour. He's been a brat. Even before, a couple of years ago, he was playing the clay swing in South America. He was screaming out these homophobic slurs yeah. when he was playing bad. What? He's been a brat. He's been a brat. Um, yeah. He, he's not my favorite, but I was enjoying him in that matchup because uh, Rude is like classically, you know, tennis robot. Like just no expression like i really have a hard time watching his matches and so i thought that the contrast in personalities was really interesting there because mm. um, they were both playing great and uh you gotta i mean i know you don't respect him personally but like runa really fought to get into that match and made yeah, it competitive no, totally. and he, he could have been in a final it's um it was not far isn't the one where he told his mom to leave is that that match Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he told his mom to leave. And then yeah, afterwards, <laughs> he said that in the locker room, he reckons that Casper um, Rude had to walk past him and screamed out "Yeah!" in his face as they as they walked past each other. In the locker room. And then Casper yeah. had to come out afterwards and be like, "That's a complete lie. I was sitting in the ice tub eating pizza." Holger Runo was on the other side of the locker room. I didn't even speak to him. I don't know what he's talking about. It's just a complete lie. <laughs> yeah, that was the sort of story that made, like, it's like, have you met Casper Rude? Like, <laughs> like the, the idea that he would do that to an opponent? Like, I mean, okay, maybe he's got some some dark passenger or something and like you know in, in like in the locker room he's like the fucking you know he's just a demon and like gets in your face no no that's not the case like no. he is like everybody talks about how he's just a good like a really decent guy and everybody likes him on tour and the fact that runa would invent that story like suggests a real deep fucked up darkness <laughs> that uh i think we're gonna be keeping our eye on in, yeah, uh, the yeah, years. yeah. We're suggesting a uh, deep fucked up darkness, and we're saying fuck you to you and your <laughs> all your family. I think now is the time where we extend an olive <laughs> olive branch to Runa and say, "Hey, maybe we've been unfair. Um, if you'd like to come on to the tennis tragic um, and do an interview with us, explain everything, um, uh, and give you you know a fair hearing." Um, we'd like to do that, so Holger Runa, please come on to the tennis tragic. 
you will be welcome here by at least Matt and myself. <laughs> and we'll keep Alex on a bit of a leash for you. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the thing. Like every time we talk shit about somebody, I mean, like I really like, I definitely feel like I try to watch that, you know, because I don't know these people personally, and it's rare that somebody gets to that spare place where I'm just like man this you know like i think there's something really broken and i just can't get behind this person but like would you say fuck you to his face no no, it's true i'm i'm playing it up for sure i don't actually hate this guy that much you're right we're we're mucking around and we're not free it feels it just feels funnier to take it to an extreme um i do dislike him but i don't like before uh you know i was just like getting a bit carried away oh i liked it but he's uh he's very uh very trigger happy with his block block finger on twitter as well if anyone says anything that it's not even criticizing him if anyone says anything that he just perceives as like negative towards him block 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 he's just blocked like half of tennis twitter on on, on twitter yeah i oh, know we could be next in line yeah good yeah you got i mean you gotta shut you gotta shut out the negativity man you can't, yeah, you yeah. can't let that stuff like who cares what the tennis tragic says yeah no exactly about. Like yeah, he sh- yeah. And he shouldn't. Like even no. if, even if people listen to us, uh, he shouldn't. Even care. if they did, he still shouldn't yeah. care. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, another question, Alex. Like, do you think there's? Do you think it could turn around? Because he is—he's a child. I mean, I, yeah. I will. At 20, well, no, he's not 20. He's 18 years old, right? Which makes it even crazier. He got to the same place Alcaraz did. He's—he's he's a baby. Like he could grow up, right? Yeah, totally. I think he could. I think he could. Someone actually made an interesting comparison um, to Zverev, in that he seems to travel with his like in a tight little family bubble, and that no one ever really seems to say no. Get that feeling, like, and there was, someone made a comparison to Zverev in that way, and I sort of can see it a little bit. The the similarities between those two and their entourages and how they sort of are in their little bubble world um so hopefully you know hopefully he can grow up and turn around or you know maybe he'll be the next <laughs> <laughs> well yeah we'll see i i was actually open to i've disliked him for a couple of years because he's very arrogant on social media and stuff and then in that south american swing where he was saying all those slurs and stuff like that he got called out and everyone was like hating on him back then and I was like, all right, I'm open to him. He's playing good tennis. Let's just see how he goes uh, on this clay season and this swing. He's playing well. But then he's just done this again. And I'm like, oh, all right. And I'm sort of, this sort of was my second, like, my give him another crack. Uh, but whatever, he's still a child, so he probably, he'll probably turn it around. But I'm um, speaking of Renate. And the, the, did anyone, you probably didn't see that Patrick Moritoglu Academy had a, uh, like a graduation ceremony, <laughs> graduation ceremony. He was there. Man, Patrick Moritoglu is such a weird dude. And I hate the vibe that he has and his whole academy has. And it's weird how monopolizing he's becoming in coaching, in the coaching world. I just it's, I feel like it's really strange what's going on there. He's, he's kind of, he's weirdly promiscuous as a coach, right? Like oh, he's, yeah. He's like coaching half the tour, it feels like. And yeah. also there's this, like the Simona Halep story, this uh, this French Open was kind of interesting because she came into it. She had just switched to Mortaglu pretty recently, apparently fell in love with the place and the kind of the training facility, you know, the training operation there and 
felt like it was what she needed to kind of light a fire under her. And, and then she had a panic attack in round two and, you know, and it's, so it's like, I don't know that, I don't know. Is there something off there? Like, I mean, that could say more about Simona and where she is in her life, but yeah. Has he had, has he had any winners like slam winners uh, since Serena? I think the closest he's come is Tsitsipas, but he doesn't sit in the Tsitsipas box anymore. He used to be in the box all the time in the big matches. He's not there anymore. But even yeah. after that Halep thing, he made it about himself. He's like, I didn't do well enough. We, I didn't I didn't achieve what I needed to do mm. with Ryder and stuff. Yeah, it's like, stop making yeah. yourself the center of this, man. Like, who, like, he's just tries to be, he's pushing out too much content. He's like a business guy and all these yeah. videos, 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 put out content all the time. To build to build his brand and his academy and it's just like it feels like coaching Simona is just another way to get more eyes on his academy you know it feels a bit even at the this graduation thing where he's uh, you know graduating from what a, a couple a season at the academy I don't know I don't know how that all works but really it was there. could be could be high school yeah true Coco Goff just graduated from high school they showed her in her graduation gown like by the Eiffel Tower I <laughs> know <laughs> this was this was this was like graduating from tennis school, you know. And then at the ceremony, he's brought out Simona Halep, like to, to the, like, and here's Simona Halep, ah, and on stage and confetti and like, what the, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I kind of wonder, I do think there's a savviness to it because it's, I, I feel like from his perspective, he's looking at the coaching world and he thinks, why is everybody just coaching one player? Why don't you just like, why don't you turn it into an empire of coaching, you know, like, <laughs> and it's like coaching and representation. And also kind of sounds like the Mortaglu Academy is like, it's like tennis academy for adults. You know, it's like, oh, you get to go there and you hang out with all these like really good, beautiful people. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. like, oh, like uh, Simona Halep just showed up for a hit. Like, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Like, you don't get that when you're just like in your little box. And, you know, I just what at what point. Do you know if so many play, up and coming players are coming through the same academy? At what point does it become? I don't know. It seems strange to have a bunch of people competing against each other who are from the same coach or branch of coaching. I guess not really, but something's something strange about it to me. Yeah, I mean, we have players competing from the same nations against each other, and that's supposedly like the most important thing. Like that's what Wimbledon's ruling on like if you're from a certain nation yeah i don't know i think that's a bit different than like the same coaches teaching you the same tricks and the same thought patterns and strategies coming up against oh yeah i see what you're saying like it's compromising because you know the tricks of your fellow yeah, academy, sort of. academy players well um, they can i'm i'm assuming that they you know they have personal attention and then yeah. the coaches if they're good are working with their strengths and weaknesses i mean i don't know if maybe this isn't as common in australia but you know i i know in the us there is a history of like certain academies more for juniors but like you know the nick Balatieri academy yeah. uh, chris everett academy like they That's have sweet. these organizations and i think they kind of do work like boarding schools like yeah. i think Balatieri, like I think he had like Agassi and Sampras and you know and Courier like all in the same like weird like high school uh coming up together playing against each other you know but I I don't know if he coached that like they all probably got their own coaches after leaving so it it, this feels different because it is these are like established pros who are who are working with him in this environment 
But I really agree with the characterization of the Moritoglu Academy as a business empire. Um, and what you said, David, being how he's promiscuous. Because I watch... Um, I, I, I watch these um, drill videos sometimes and it's, you know, he's seemingly just, um, he's hitting with so many different players um, and, and I feel like he's speaking directly to me how I can improve my game through the, through <laughs> the um, computer screen. And there's this account I follow called the Tennis Brothers um, and it's like, it, there's this uh, guy on there who's trying to get one ATP point. That's his goal. So he's playing all the, the lower tier. He's from England. He's playing all the lower tier things, trying to qualify to into different events, training. And he went to the Moritoglu Academy and, and had a personal thing with Moritoglu and, you know, had a photo shoot with him and, and everything. And this guy's a nobody, but he's got a YouTube channel and Moritoglu's there. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Did he did he have to pay to like? Can you just pay to go to the Mortaglu Academy? I would assume that probably there's a. Brain. Oh yeah, if you got money, I'm sure you can get in. But um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I you don't, don't get a personal he... lesson with him unless you got ten thousand followers. Right. <laughs> or or more money. He won't coach anyone with less than ten thousand followers. That guy. <laughs> this guy's also got a clothing deal with Biddy Badu. The the tennis brothers. The tennis brothers guy. Yeah. Yeah. Are there so there's are there more than one tennis? I think brothers? there must be another one who's not going for one ATP point. <laughs> okay. Maybe there's like, one behind the camera. I they're tennis fans and like but the one has that mission. That's really cool. The that I remember the New York Times did a piece on like the challenge of trying to get the one point and how there are all the, there's this whole legion of struggling pros, you know, who were like promising juniors or had a good college career and they just scrape and scrape to get that one point. And it's like, nobody sees it, you know, it's their plan that the smallest events, they just have to win one match, but it's, you know, they're just, uh, just getting there. Not, Oh, and yeah. I, I think actually you can't like, I, maybe it's like futures don't give you a point with a win or something. You have to, win no, you have to, and a bunch of the qualifiers don't like this guy's got into a main draw. But then he's lost in the first round, which would have given him a, a point, like in a in an ITF tournament or whatever. Cool. Is that on YouTube or where, like where can I come across that? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, that sounds real interesting. I'd like to check that out. We got Wimbledon coming up, and it'll be a whole different group of weirdos breaking through. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. And no Russians, which is strange. That's going to be. I'm still. I don't think I'm gonna really come to terms with that until it happens until the tournament comes and i realize that all these people are not there yeah uh like rublev all the flat hitters you know all the russians are flat hitters they're gonna go they would have gone all right on grass but yeah yeah it it definitely opens up some space in the draws um quite a few good players are are not going to be there as a result. And yeah, I wonder what the the feeling of it'll be. I mean, I think once it comes down to like match play, you know, it's still Wimbledon. They're still mm. going to be playing with everything, like even though the points aren't there and, and part of the cohort is missing. But um, yeah, I don't know. Just as like if I divorce myself from the fact that I think it's wrong that they ban the Russians and then also that they... 
I, I guess I have mixed feelings about the points being withheld. I, like, I just, I don't know. It'll change the tournament. It'll make it unexpected and different. And, you know, as a mm. fan, that, that should be interesting. So we shall see. I, I like Wimbledon's move of cancelling the points because it's like saying this is not legitimate if you don't allow these players to play. They didn't have anything to do with the war and... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's totally undemocratic, but I think they could have even gone further and cancelled the tournament completely. Do they have that power? Well, Wimbledon could say oh, we're not putting it on. Oh, it's it's ATP and WTA who's um, they stop the points. They stop yeah. the points in there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that the like the lack of points, like it. It just hurts a bunch of different people in different ways and doesn't like I get I like it as a gesture of like disagreeing with the move to ban the Russians and Belarusians. But it just, you know, it it just has these weird ripple effects, you know, like all these people are going to have points come off and it just kind of creates a mess. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that that's the mess. Uh, There should there should be there needs to be some way of retaining even half points or something from last year, something that rewards the grass players there's only a few grass tournaments and the people who play well on grass earned some points last year and that's all going to go and they have no chance to defend them and there needs to be some way for them to retain some points because that's i don't like that at all yeah i guess it's worth remembering that the really fucked up thing that's going on is russia's invasion of ukraine in the war but i just looking at this independently yeah i I don't know. There are there are players whose careers are affected by this, and you know, right? It just, it, yeah, it didn't have anything to do with them, and it it would have been nice if there was a better solution. I get that it's all stemmed from what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, but it's the seems, you know, when all the other tournaments, either side of that, Russians are playing, points are being handed out, and then there's just one big one in the middle that's points are not there. Doesn't make much sense to me. Yeah, it's it's definitely yeah. political, and it's definitely like. Britain's part in NATO. Yeah. I mean, you could argue the same for France, but I think um, because they're also in NATO, but politically, I think there's just more of a gun of a, of a patriotic attitude that against Russia, they don't want, that's one of their key arguments, isn't it? They don't want any glory being brought on Russia or Belarus. Um, And the other argument is, which is not a, not the worst one is um, if players have to renounce their um, allegiance, it could cause personal safety issues. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't yeah. think that's worth. That's something they should do anyway. I think that would be wor- the worst of all worlds. I think compelled speech is really dangerous, and yeah, a sports event should not be engaging in in the politics in that way. I, I just don't, I don't like it at all. But yeah. You know, they wanted to make a statement and they did. Um, I just feel like it's kind of a weak statement in the grand scheme of things. Like what the UK chooses to do politically to, you know, to aid Ukraine in the war against Russia is so much more meaningful. Mm -hmm. You know, this just feels like a kind of frivolous aside that has collateral damage. And uh, I don't know, I think the ATP and WTA were hoping that their decision would force Wimbledon to reverse course but doesn't seem like that's happening so yeah any final words what will you remember 
from Roland Garros. Sverre's ankle, I'll remember that. And I feel personally responsible in a way because if you were, I think we, we do something here, boys. Remember we, we, we had the Radicanu incantation? Yeah. And it was just a stupid spell with Radicanu's name repeated. Um, and, and then she won the US Open final. Yeah. And do you remember that I had the dream about Sophia Kennan? Uh, yes. Being in the, in the final. And she won. And then she won. And then she won a slam. And then we, we were talking about the um, joy we would take in Zverev losing. And then I said, no, but it's not good enough if he loses. I want him to be humiliated. I want him to be calling out and crying. I think I said crying or something like that on the court. Yeah. Crying for his and mother. Then, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Radicani, I think she just got injured in her first grass match. Oh, no. That's a shame. That's yeah. not on us. I didn't say anything about that. <laughs> yeah. I, she's, I think she was headed for a hard time at Wimbledon and, like, the pressure there. Remember, she had the panic attack at Wimbledon before yeah. she won the U.S. Open. I just think, I mean, we don't know where her career is headed, but, like, she needs some time to... Develop as a person, as a player. Like she just needs a little bit more time. Well, what she did last year was incredible, but it's like it can. I think it can happen too soon, you know. So we'll see. Yeah, I think I think this Zverev injury is probably the moment that I will I will remember the most. Looking back, certainly not those two finals. Nah, it's a shame. The Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com And our Instagram is at tennistragicpod.